Wells. He was a considerable horologist. In his time he had made many clocks with motions of antiquarian interest and had written full directions for constructing them, always in the miniature mechanic. He had made little beam engines which would have delighted James Watt and still delighted those who are fascinated by such things. He had made little jet engines which would have delighted Frank Whittle. He had made pumps and boilers and carillons that played a tune all in the miniature scale. He was a quick worker and a ready writer upon technical matters, and he delighted in making little things that worked. He had now so ordered his life that he need do nothing else. All through the war he had written about his hobby after the long hours of overtime in the tool room. The coming of peace had given him more leisure for his models and his articles about them, and two years later he had taken the great plunge of giving up his job in favor of his avocation. It had not benefited him financially. He would have made more money in the tool room, progressing up from charge hand to foreman. He would have made more money as an instructor in a technical college. He would not have made more happiness than he had now attained. He was a very serious and well-informed student of engineering matters, though he would have been amazed to hear himself described in such terms. He read about techniques for pleasure. One morning in each week he would spend in the Ealing Public Library, browsing through the technical magazines, slightly oppressed by a sense of guilt that he was not working. On Fridays he always went to London to deliver his weekly copy to the editor of the Miniature Mechanic and arrange about the blocks, and being in London he would take time off and sneak away for three or four hours to the library of the patent office for a period of interest and pleasure before going home to catch up with his work. He worked normally till eleven or twelve each night. He called the front basement room his clean workshop, and this was his machine shop. Here he had a six-inch Herbert lathe for heavy work, a three-and-a-half-inch Myford, and a Bowley watchmaker's lathe. He had a senior milling machine and a Boxford shaper, a large and a small drill press, and a vast array of tools ready to hand. A long bench ran across the window, a tubular light system ran across the ceiling, and a small camera and flash gun stood ready for use in a cupboard, for it was his habit to take photographs of interesting processes to illustrate his articles. The other room, which once had been the kitchen of the house, was considerably larger. He called this his dirty workshop, but it was in this room that he had his desk and drawing board, for it was usually free of oil. Here he did what small amount of carpentry and woodworking might be necessary for his models. Here he welded and brazed. Here he tempered and hardened steel. Here he did steam trials of his steam engines, so that it had been necessary for him to fit an extractor fan into the window. It was in this room that he stood talking to his brother-in-law, Commander Dermot, the red leather jewel case in his hands. The copper box that he had made stood on the bench before them, the rectangular sheet of copper that was to be the lid loose beside it. "'I've left room for packing this asbestos card all round it,' Keith said. "'I'll brace it up with a small oxyacetylene flame, but I'm afraid it's going to get a bit hot inside. I'm afraid it may scorch the leather, even with the asbestos.' "'I don't think that matters,' said the naval officer. "'It won't set it on fire.' Keith shook his head. "'The top is a good fit, and I'll clamp it down all round while I'm brazing. "'There won't be enough oxygen inside to support combustion. "'I'm just worried about the look of it when you take it out. "'It could be a bit brown.' "'That doesn't matter.' Keith shook the case. "'It was fairly heavy, but nothing rattled. "'He glanced at his brother-in-law. "'What's it got in it?' "'All Joe's jewels,' John Dermot told him. You're only allowed to take so much out of the country. This is going somewhere on the yacht, the other nodded. Somewhere where nobody's going to find it. 
Keith said no more, but took off his jacket and hung it on a hook at the back of the door. He put on a leather apron that covered his body from the neck down, and turned on the gas at the cylinders, picked up the torch, and went to work. He never questioned anything that his brother-in-law said or did. They came from different worlds. John had been a regular naval officer, and Keith was a modest little man. His sister had done a good job for herself, he reflected as he brazed the seam when she married John Dermott. It had turned out well in spite of the social disparity. Joe had been a pretty child with good Scots sense. She had been fond of dancing, and at the age of twelve she had become one of the Tiller girls. Her first part was one of nine elves in the magic wood in pantomime. She had stayed with the organization and had played in theaters and music halls all over the British Isles, with occasional runs in London. It had been partly upon her account that Keith had left Glasgow and come down to work in the South to see more of his only sister.